the sound of fireworks over Douglas Bay on the night of the 1st of January 1979. A day etched in the memory of all those who celebrated the millennium of Timbald, a thousand years of Manx parliamentary tradition. That night, the island embarked on the biggest and possibly the most expensive party in its history. But what a time we had. I'm Charles Gard, and I was one of the event organisers during Millennium Year, and in this programme, I'm going to recall some of the extraordinary events of that celebration 40 years ago. I'm joined by a friend of mine, someone I met during the run-up to that year, Robert Quayle. At that time, Robert was the newly appointed and the youngest ever Clerk of Tinwald, and most of the organisation for the year fell on his shoulders. Robert and I have come to the Public Records Office here in Douglas, where there's a wealth of files and papers to do with all aspects of Millennium Year. And it's fascinating to read through old letters, minutes and memos. To be honest, I thought all of this had long since disappeared, so it's something of a revelation to find that this important institution, the PRO, has kept all this, and much else besides, as a vital record of the island's government and administration. So, Robert, how did the idea of Millennium Year come about? Well, it all started because Barney Young, GVC Young OBE, who was one of the legislative draftsmen who beavered away in a cloud of smoke at the opposite end of the corridor in government buildings from me, came along one day and engaged me in conversation and said that he'd, in his historical researches he'd discovered that Tinwald was founded in 978. Well, I, I didn't really take him that seriously, to be honest, um, because I knew that Tinwald was approximately a 1,000 years old, but I don't think there was very much documentary evidence, let's put it that way, for the date. But he, he then um, convinced a member of the House of Keys called Betty Hansen that this was indeed the, the correct date and it ought to be celebrated. So she came along to see me in my office and said, I want to put down a motion that we should be celebrating the millennium of Tinwald in, in 1978, which was the following year. I said, well, Betty, that's a great idea, but do you think you could actually just put it off a year because we won't have time to get ready for it in 978? So she went back to Barney and he said, well, I can't be absolutely precise, but I would have thought 1979 is a perfectly reasonable date to, to um, celebrate it. So that's how it became 1979. And luminaries such as David Wilson, Sir David Wilson, who was then the director of the British Museum and probably the foremost expert on the Vikings in the world, said, well, of course, nobody knows the exact date, but it's a very good excuse to celebrate something that's worth celebrating. Actually, he used the word party, but at the same time... Um, he, he, he was not averse to the idea of, of marking the occasion appropriately. I remember working for Banks Radio in 1978. I was at the opening of the newly refurbished Grove Museum in 78, opened by Sir David Wilson, who stood on the steps of the house and said, um, and of course you've got a fake millennium next year. And everybody went, <gasps> well, some years after the millennium, Barney Young uh, gave us his thoughts on how he'd been treated. Uh, I wrote an article about it and uh, the politicians became very interested. Mm. Uh, it was to their advantage, it gave them 
an opportunity one in around Europe. Uh, they never fitted me in any of these shenanigans, but um, they were very grateful for the work which I'd done. Did you get fair credit for it, do you think? At the time, I don't think so. The late Barney Young, reminiscing with David Collister. I'm looking now at Hansard, which is the uh, printed version of the debates in Tynwald. And here we are in March uh, 1977, when the actual committee was formed. There's an extraordinary speech by Betty Hansen, whom you've just mentioned. I mean, it's almost like a thesis on the history of the Isle of Man. I dare say, uh, with great respect, she didn't actually write it, but it must have taken about 45 minutes to read, um, and Tynwald must have been riveted by it. And at the end, then, there was a vote to put the members onto the so-called Millennium Committee. There were five members, and the governor says, members, we have a tie for the fifth place, would the court agree that we should increase the number of members to six? And this was agreed. So everybody was on the committee. Well, it was a very a pragmatic response, I think. Uh, and it was very wise because it got as many people tied into the event as possible, which we then built on by setting up subcommittees for everything under the sun. And I think every member of Tinwald, virtually, I don't think there were any exceptions, served on some form of subcommittee. So they all bought into the, the idea and, and enjoyed it. Of course, there was initial cynicism, certainly from the members of the public. And I think one of the members here was reporting back to Tinwald. He'd been down to the pub and everybody was saying, well, you know, what is this millennium and just how much is it going to cost? And the claim was that a million visitors would be brought to the island in 1979. That was the claim Betty made, actually, or that was the ambition. In fact, it didn't happen, but we'll come to that at the end, because it generally was a great success financially and visitors-wise. I mean, your scheme, I think, was to have everybody on the committee so that, as you say, everybody was signed up to it. Were there any dissenters in the court? I don't remember any dis any dissenters. There were one or two who were a bit sceptical about it, but everybody seemed to get on board. I don't recall anybody boycotting anything. Um, even some of the more cynical members were quite happy to come along to some of the celebrations, and I think one, they, they all took the view that, well, we're going to celebrate this, let's, let's get on with it. And most of them did recognise what, what a marvellous opportunity it was to sort of relaunch the Isle of Man in, 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 in some areas, um, and it, that worked. I'd only come back to live on the island in 1977. I'd been away at Music College and living in Ireland, and I was summoned to the Speaker's office, the then Mr Charles Carouche, and invited to organise one of the weeks of celebration. I was given Celtic Week, we'll come back to that in a moment, which was to be the week after Tinwald Week. Um, so quite a lot of people were, were brought on board. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the list of events that happened in Millennium Year, it's just phenomenal. Everyone who did an ordinary event did a Millennium version of it. But um, the year opened with uh, a major concert at the Gaiety Theatre with fireworks outside. But prior to that, someone, possibly you, had had the idea of getting a message from the Queen with the Queen's bat on. And 
you uh, you seem to be everywhere in this year. I mean, you have to be given pretty well credit for organising the whole thing. You were down in Buckingham Palace meeting the Queen about this uh, idea. Somebody had had the idea of, of a, a relay bringing a message from the Queen to launch the Millennium Celebrations. And Derek Pobjoy of the Pobjoy Mint, who were minting the island's coinage at the time, said, well, I'll make a baton that you can put the message in. And um, the committee came up with this idea of this relay of runners. And there was a lovely guy called Derek Harrison, um, who I think was the initial runner. And he he helped organise a whole lot of island athletes to run the message through Britain to arrive in the island or and then go round the island prior to its reception at this this party on uh, at the Gaiety Theatre. And then, I'm not quite sure where the idea came from, that the message from the Queen should be preceded by a loyal address from Tinwald. I don't think the politicians possibly realised that it would involve somebody going down to present it, because I'm sure they would have probably wanted to be on the bandwagon if, if, um, if they'd known. But for some reason... I got deputed to go and do it. So on December the 21st, uh, I was down at Buckingham Palace presenting this loyal address to the Queen, and she in turn handed her message, which was put in this baton, and Derek Harrison ran off into the, into, into the ether with the message. Of course, the truth of the was that it had to be put somewhere over Christmas because nobody was going to be running through, through the Christmas holiday. And it, I think it went to the home of the chairman of the Anglo-Manx Parliamentary Society or something like that. Um, would it have been Lord Tony Greenwood, I think, and he promised to look after it over Christmas. And then it was handed back to the runners and they then ran on with it um, through Britain, arriving in the island and then round the parishes um, and ending up in the Gaiety Theatre. As it did, and we've actually got some audio from that opening night in the Gaiety Theatre, commentated by Ian Cannell, as the baton comes in, and you're speaking, and then Sir Charles, uh, or Charles Carouche is speaking. And here we applause from the audience as Derek Harrison, flanked by his four escorting athletes, runs down the centre aisle of the Gaiety Theatre, up the red carpeted staircase and onto the stage of the theatre, where he hands the silver baton containing the message from the Lord of Man to Mr Robert Quayle, the Clerk of Tinwald. And you will hear Mr Quayle announcing the arrival of the baton, and that will be followed by the voice of His Excellency the Lieutenant Governor. Your Excellency, a message from Her Majesty the Queen, the Lord of Man. Mr. Speaker, would you be good enough to read the message? Your Excellency, Your Worship, my Lord Bishop, Your Honours, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. The royal message reads, I am deeply grateful to Your Excellency, the Council and Keys in Tinwald assembled, and the people of the Isle of Man for your warm and loyal greetings. I greatly value the ancient ties which link the crown with the Isle of Man. And I look forward to presiding at the annual meeting of Tinwald next July and sharing in the celebration of this historic event. How was this promoted? I mean, the idea of us celebrating a thousand years of history, in the end, an enormous number of royal 
and uh, distinguished visitors came throughout the year. Did our politicians go and spread the word? There were a number of dedicated visits to places with which we had historical connections that had perhaps lapsed. And I particularly recall visits to Iceland in the depths of winter, which was fascinating, I have to say, um, to Norway, Denmark and Sweden. Um, And it was my first visits to all of those countries. And there seemed to be a considerable amount of interest. The Swedes were the most difficult to to get involved. They looked politely interested, but not terribly. The Norwegians and the Danes were really quite on board with the whole thing, recognising the commonality of our parliamentary traditions. It does, if I may say, sound a little like politicians having jollies. Were you accompanied by politicians? Well, I accompanied politicians. (laughs) (laughs) I carried the bags. No, it was quite hard work, actually. There were only two or three, two or three days in, in each, each place. I mean, it was, it was endless meetings and um, um, telling people about the Millennium and about the Isle of Man. And it actually was the real revival of those historical links, which have, have been maintained ever since. Some of those countries you mentioned did, in the end, send senior people. You had the President of Iceland and, of course, you had the King of Norway. So it did bear fruit. Oh, absolutely. And there were other distinguished visitors from those those countries as well during that period. Uh, we did have a Princess of Sweden came, Princess Margarita, I think her name was, but she was married to an English businessman, so she didn't have far to come, but she did come. One of the legacies of Millennium Year was, of course, the Millennium Way. And I've been speaking to Stan Basnett, who, at the time, was the Senior Assistant Engineer with the Highways Board. This was long before the time of ministries. And he recalls how he was deputed to put the island's first long-distance footpath together. It all started when a letter arrived from the Millennium Committee. It was asking for all government departments to come up with any scheme that would involve them or their land to commemorate the Millennium. Can you remember your attitude or even the members' attitude to the whole idea of the millennium? It was just, well, here you are. There it is, Stanley. You get on with it. And uh, I did. So your idea, which is one of the legacies now of Millennium Year, was what became known as the Millennium Way. How did you alight on that idea? Well, we went away from the board meeting and... um, we had to think about it, and we decided to plot it on the old royal way, where the Vikings came in at uh, one end and dropped off at the other end, and they commanded the high ground so that they were in perfect control of their going. These were all existing rights of way. In places, there were no rights of way because it was open common land and there was a free right of ramblage over all these areas. So we just had to join them up. I've just been looking at some of the photographs you've you've taken, one of tens of thousands, (laughs) I think you have, Stanley. Um, And you showed me something that I recall vaguely at the time. There was a certain amount of vandalism of the new signage. What was that about? Well, we never really got to the bottom of it, Um, it had happened in two areas, one above Kirk Michael and one round Santon. The one around Santon we put down to a farmer, um, but we couldn't prove it. And 
we just replaced them. And eventually they got used to them and they just left them there because they realized how important the Millennium Way became. It was opened by Norman Radcliffe uh, at the bottom of Sky Hill. I noticed there's a, a, a red ribbon and a pair of scissors. Oh, yes, the scissors. <laughs> yes, they were a pair of pear scissors. <laughs> and uh, they, they, were very, they were all glistened and they were polished and everything and they were absolutely super. But they wouldn't cut the ribbon. <laughs> were there any particular um, landowners who refused to allow it to pass their land? Yes, there was one who uh, lived out at Dalby, and um, yes, it became quite a problem that it. Uh, we had quite a, a battle in the courts about it, but in the end they won. And then after she died, uh, she passed the um, the land to a cousin, I think it was, who said, yes, go ahead, and it all resolved itself in the end yeah well robert one of the big events was the mission to man organized by bishop vernon nichols i think and uh, there was a controversial side i have to say because the bishop decided to close all the church halls while the mission to man was on to make sure that no one could have their crochet meeting or their yoga classes i think they would all be forced to come to the villa marina uh, at least that's what it looked like but you actually spoke at one of the big meetings um in the Villa Marina, and you had said that that day you had been walking part of the Millennium Way. And I have a photograph here that I don't think you've seen. I haven't, and there I recognise myself, and I recognise my younger brother, who's there, and I recognise my very good friend from Cambridge days, who's still a good friend, um, and my dog, <laughs> Bumble, <laughs> yes, who, who, as you can see, participated readily in, in any alfresco lunches. <laughs> well, there you are on the way, uh, eating some, <laughs> eating sandwiches. Um, I mean, it's quite an opening and quite an event. Um, how far did you get along the Millennium Way well, that we day? Went, we went from Sky Hill to Crosby, I think, and because I knew that I, Bishop Nichols had earmarked me to come and speak at the m- Mission to Man that evening, I thought, well, I better cry off and make sure that I'm not sort of on my knees, literally, for, for the event. <laughs> But I, I think I do. I do recall using the the um, the illustration that I picked up on the walk of seeing these the, these finger posts or these little signposts of showing where you should go, as an indication about how, how life panned out really. And one occasionally got these you know signposts. Yes, I've I've heard the sermon. It's, <laughs> right. it's very impressive. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> I don't remember much more about it than that, except that there were a lot of people there. I remember the. Two big things I think you could say about Millennium Year was, of course, the royal visit, which we'll come to in a moment, but the other was Odin's Raven, and that got international publicity and is still, of course, remembered today. How were you uh, involved in that? Well, there was a man who lived on the Isle of Man called Warwick Charlton who'd come up with the, an idea of doing a voyage from Norway. And I don't know whether he influenced Robin or whether Robin Bigland had the idea totally spontaneously, but he then came forward with this idea of having a boat built, a replica boat built in Norway, and getting together a crew to row it or sail it to the Isle of Man. And and what's more, Robin was 
deeply committed and you know agreed to underwrite the cost of it fantastically and generously and uh, it was very much his project and of course it was one of the events that really captured the public imagination in millennium year well i've been speaking to robin bigland about that um the family bigland came from mm. cumbria but originally they were from Bigland's Fjord in Norway. So he had, you know, a great Viking heritage. And he told me more about how it all came about. Well, I, I suppose the mere fact that the family had historically come over from, from Norway in such circumstances had fascinated me from an early age. And um, here was a golden opportunity to relive a childhood dream, as it were. And we were able to find uh, a small family boat builder much in the same way that the Vikings had their own boats built, at um, a place called Engelsvik, up the Oslo Fjord, and uh, got her going. I think it was a bit of a surprise to many people that it did actually happen, but in the event, um, Sir Charles Carouche in those days came across and did his, his bit, and I was fortunate again to have a, a friend who was in those days commanding the special boat section of the Royal Marines, and um, I asked him if he could help us with the training, which he jumped at. And so we got a mixed crew of, of uh, Norwegians, five Norwegians, and 11 from the Isle of Man, following an advertisement I put in the papers asking if the Viking spirit lived. And it sure did, because we got 483 replies, I think it was. Um, <clears throat> so having eventually whittled that all down, to 25 aspirants. Um, everyone had to fulfill certain conditions, you know, in fitness and whatever terms. And, um, and then we got, a, we got it going. You mentioned the family boat builders. I know that you uh, wanted to get the boat insured with Lloyds and they asked to see the plans. And when you went back to the builders, I think you found that they were actually building it really on the hoof as they had done for, for many, many hundreds of years. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, um, there wasn't a plan, quite simply. And, and I, I did ask, the, um, there were three brothers involved, the elder brother, I said, could I have the, the plans, you see? And he said, well, uh, tomorrow morning. And I thought, oh, it's a bit strange. So I went and had a look and watched from a covered spot. And, of course, they were just, you know, just moving around. Just, everything was done by eye, hand and eye. Mm. The training. Now, I do remember a photograph of all you um, aspirant uh, Norwegian Vikings uh, from behind, all stark naked down at Fleshik. Is that right? Did I see that in the telegraph? Um, well, you probably saw it in the picture. <laughs> I think it was Mail and the, the Express. And uh, we had to say, well, look, you know, I guess you'll have to take it from behind. It wouldn't be terribly fair. I have to tell you that um, when I got back home, from having been, we were training in November and December, it was very cold. And as you say, we were naked in the sea, doing all sorts of exercise and whatever. I got back home. My wife said to me, where have you been? And I said, well, have we been naked in the ocean off Fleshick Bay? And she looked at me and she said, lots of flesh, but not much wick, I fancy. <laughs> now, it was launched, I, I remember the broadcast, by... Lady Paul, who actually went out to Norway. She did indeed, yes, she did. I named this ship Odin's Raven. A fair wind to the ship, success and prosperity to her brave and valiant crew, 
to bring her safely to the Isle of Man. And now in Manx, Tami Genmis Alongshore Fih Odin, Kiervai then Long, as Sonis as Fidelis then Skimmy Brow Donald Eck. And she's launched a first time shot, and now Odin's Raven slowly sails into the fjord here. The trip, I think, took, what, about 37 days? Uh, yes, I think it's about right. Um, we, we spent, I remember we spent 31 nights at sea because, of course, most of the, the time we had rendezvous at various places down through the Scottish Islands and the like. And in order to turn up at whatever time, 10 o'clock the following morning or something, you had to get, a, get there the night before and then sort of appear around the headland, you know, to the bands playing and the other jamboree. But you couldn't do that by, you know, if you had to sail a couple hundred miles or whatever it was. Um, obviously, you know, you had to arrive ahead of time. And so it involved a great deal of night sailing. But given that, of course, at the time we were, we, we left on the 28th of May and came back, as you know, on the eve of Timwald. The thing was, of course, that you didn't have any support boats with you. You refused to have that. You were out there as the Vikings would have been. Well, we did want it to be a proper experience. I mean, I think, you know, when you have escort vessels and things, you, it's not, it's not, you don't feel it's authentic. Um, I mean, admittedly, equipment in those days was rather different 40 years ago. Um, you, you didn't have sort of Gore-Tex. And, well, actually, we did. That's not true. We, we, <laughs> we were asked if we would try out some Gore-Tex, the original Gore-Tex. But unfortunately, uh, it, it didn't work. It blistered and, and, and leaked. <laughs> so they've, they've made some improvements since then. It's pretty good stuff nowadays. But in those days, it wasn't too good. The BBC did do a, a documentary, and I think it was in The Sound of Rasse that the director tempted you out much against your better judgment because it was pretty rough and there was, of course, uh, an important uh, event then took place. It was a very gusty, blowy day. Uh, Bill Hook, the, the producer, wanted as much footage as he could get, obviously, for, for the film they were making and encouraged us with the idea that, you know, the wind was just right for a you know, speedy trip and so on. Anyway, I, I only took about five people, I think, with us and, that, uh, and offloaded a fair bit of gear. Um, Anyway, it is the case that we we did we were hit by this gust and she capsized, um, and we'd prepared for that. I mean, we 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 had trained, you know, as to what to do. Um, the yacht that they had, the BBC had chartered, uh, obviously came to our aid, and eventually we got a line on her and towed her back into Portree. Uh, and then at about three in the morning, the local fire brigade came and, and pumped her out. And the, the locals were fantastic. I mean, they couldn't have been more helpful. People were taking boats out to pick up our odds and sods, you know, belongings and things that had been floating away. Um, they were tremendous. Extraordinary thing happened, though, that the Bishop at Trontium had given you a stone uh, from the cathedral That's there right. to give to our bishop and you perhaps thought you might have lost that in the upturning. Well, it, I mean, obviously a stone, you know, it was an unlikely object to survive a, an event of that nature. And I, I'm, Although we, we'd put it underneath the floorboards, as it were, and lo and behold, it had wedged in one of the rooms underneath. And lo and behold, you know, there she, there, I mean, I, and I retrieved it, and thank goodness for that. Mm. Very lucky we were. And so when I, you know, 
arrived back, I brought it onto the beach and presented it to the bishop. <laughs> and it's now, in, it's now in Peel as it should be. I remember the day you arrived, I was actually reporting for Manx Radio and I'd gone up in a small plane piloted by Stuart Jameson uh, just so I could record an yeah. early sighting of you, but we couldn't immediately find you. In fact, we went so far north as to the, the Southern Hebrides trying mm. to find you, and when we came back, we actually found that you were uh, sitting around the back of Peel Hill. As you do. <laughs> well, we arrived, we'd been in Portree, and we came down pretty early in the morning. It was a lovely day, absolutely beautiful. And uh, we'd, ha- we'd had some fair celebrations um, <clears throat> previous evening, things like that. So we were in, in good heart, put it that way. And we came down and stood off. Uh, a lot of people, you know, turned up during the day and so on. And the Navy had sent over a frigate, HMS Mohawk. And it was it was a great, great celebration. And it was lovely that... We, we were due, I think, to arrive at about six o'clock, you know, actually beach at six o'clock. And um, my wife had rung up the police to say, you know, parking, is it going to be a major, etc. And the policeman on duty at that point said, no, no, don't worry, Mrs. Bigland. It's tea time. There'll be nobody there. <laughs> Which I thought was I mean, 23,000 or something. It was a lot of people. The sound of Odin's raven arriving in Peel on the evening of the 4th of July. Well, Robert, the even bigger highlight of that week was, of course, the royal visit of Her Majesty the Queen, which had been announced at the opening ceremony in the Gaiety in the January. And this must have taken an enormous amount of your time. When you read the statistics of who was here and what was happening... I mean, how did you pull it all together? Well, I don't want to underplay the role of uh, Sir Charles Cruce, the plain Henry Charles Cruce then. He was a man who had big ideas. Um, and he, he, I think, captured the vision of enhancing the Tinwald ceremony and making it a, a little bit more special. And we'd had, we'd had a sort of dry run of what we were going to do in 1978. We'd had a video taken of it and we'd we created the galleries in St John's Church to get more people in, which was controversial in itself because there was a question of whether it needed a faculty from the Church of England, and we rather took the view that actually it belonged to the government, so we just get on with it. We also there was also the controversy of the memorial wall on the Fairfield, which was moved so that the Fairfield could be made larger. And, of course, people didn't seem to realise that that had been put there in memory of the Manx fallen in the First World War, and a whole lot of trees came out. Um, so there was a great sort of controversy over that. But So we'd had a dry run of, of what we might do for the Millennium Timbal Ceremony in 1978. But with the Queen coming, it, there was an obvious opportunity to enhance the ceremony. And uh, very early on, we were introduced to a marvellous man called Major Anthony Mather, who was attached to London District, which was, I think just gave him an opportunity to go and organise lots of ceremonial military occasions. And he was a bit of an expert on it, having cut his teeth with being the officer in command of the pool-bearing party at Winston Churchill's funeral. And um, he started coming over and he made a number of suggestions, which we latched onto very, very readily, of, of, of enhanced guards of honour and bigger bands and... 
And what about the Queen coming in in a carriage? And if there was a carriage, of course, we could possibly have the household cavalry providing an escort. And then we'd probably need a royal salute with artillery. So the idea just grew like topsy. And we added all these bits that were very appropriate for a royal visit and a very special uh, Tynwald ceremony. There were some um, who felt that this was making Tynwald over-militaristic. But I think most people enjoyed the pageantry um, which it, it provided. A- actually, Anthony was able to pay us a visit on the Isle of Man a few weeks ago, which is the first time I think we'd met for 40 years. And it was wonderful to reminisce together. He didn't recognise me initially when he got off the plane because he said, you had a beard the last time I saw you. Um, he's had a very distinguished career since. He worked at Buckingham Palace and then he's been the, the, the originator of all the military orders for great ceremonial um, events such as the funeral of the Queen Mother, the funeral of Princess Diana. And it was it was a marvellous occasion to reminisce together about some of the some of the things that happened during that year. The Tyndall ceremony had been going for a thousand years or so, and it would have been improper to alter that really in any major way. Um, We just in the numbers and, and the colour and the spectacle um, to go with the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh attending. And so instead of having, let us say, a small guard of honour, which we refer to it as a small guard of honour of two officers and 48, we upped it to three officers and 99. The area was, was good for bringing in... Um, uh, carriages rather than straight motor cars. Luckily, again, I knew the Quan Aquari, and we made a plan with him. All, of course, subject to the Queen's approval. You've you've reminded me of all these wonderfully named officials that um, got involved at your instigation, like well, the Crown Aquari, Sir John Miller, who was a wonderfully, wonderfully uh, characterful person. Um, who was in charge of the Royal Mews and arranged for cars and carriages, and and now was silver stick in waiting and uh, and the riding master and all these wonderful titles that I I now am reminded of uh, and all carried wonderful uniforms as well and and we had to be incredibly innovative if I remember rightly we had to really sort of invent all the ways of getting around the logistical problems. Can you remember some of those? The logistical problems were were enormous, um, but luckily we had others to, uh, certainly on the military side, to look after that. But if you start introducing carriages opposed to cars, if you have a car with Her Majesty in it, it has a police car behind it. Um, So if you have a carriage, you had to have an escort. And the smallest... um, escort that you could manage for a sovereign was called the travelling escort and if you have a travelling escort then and the monarch then uh, you need the as you correctly say the silver stick in waiting and he needs his adjutant to hold his hand and again you have the field officer in brigade waiting because there were troops on the ground and if the sovereign is there then you have the field officer and brigade waiting and indeed his adjutant which if I remember right I think I acted for on that particular occasion and when the household cavalry come um, 
we had uh, a, a travelling escort of 18 horses, and that requires an enormous backup of, firstly, extra horses in case one goes lame. You have uh, uniforms, you've got um, the bridles that have to be cleaned, the saddles, and, of course, um, on a mounted escort, the troopers are wearing what they call jackboots, um, which travel from foot to thigh, really, enormous great black boots, um, and their helmets, all of which require polishing and cleaning. And if I remember rightly, we had to arrange for special limousines to cart some of these chaps in their jackboots around because they couldn't bend their legs sufficiently to get into ordinary vehicles. That's they? right. Because, <laughs> um, in fact, in London, we, if we have them on, on duty... Uh, they, we put on a coach for them, but they all stand in the centre aisle. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, there's no other way of getting them from A to B. The leading members of the travelling escort have already arrived opposite to the reception area, and here now is the royal procession. The royal carriage, one of the Landors from Ascot, being drawn by four Windsor Grey horses. And you will be able to hear the cheering behind me as the royal party arrives at St. John's. Two carriages. The second brings the Queen's Lady-in-Waiting, the Countess of Airlie, Crown Equerry and other members of the royal party. But now, Her Majesty the Queen has arrived at St. John's. Well, Robert, the sound of the fanfare trumpeters as the Queen arrived at Tynwald, with the commentary there by the incomparable Ian Cannell, who was the voice of Tynwald for so many years. But, of course, what everyone was waiting to hear was the voice of Her Majesty the Queen. A learned deemster, direct the court to be fenced. Arnold of Grandfaber Sheeting, and in Lider. And there, of course, was the voice of Deemster Roy Eason, the first Deemster, actually appearing for the last time before his retirement. After the acts had been promulgated and three cheers for Her Majesty had been roused, the Deemster asked a question. Has Your Majesty any further commands? If any persons wish to present a petition for redress, let them now come forward. Were there a number of petitions for redress that day? There were. I blowed if I can remember how many there were, but I mean, it was a marvellous opportunity for anybody who had any kind of grievance to come along and get a bit of publicity and well, present them inevitably to, to the Queen. Um, one of, one, of the, one of the more memorable ones was Mrs Hazel Hannan, who wasn't an MHK at the time, um, I, c- I haven't the first idea what her petition was about now, but she arrived and we- we'd obviously felt the need to make sure that petitioners were at least appropriately decorously dressed. And Hazel turned up in jeans and a T-shirt at the sort of pre-meeting to, to be briefed on what to do. And I think she recalled my look of, look of horror at seeing her, seeing her garbed in that way. And it was all a try-on because she had fully intended to go and get properly dressed afterwards, but she she succeeded in winding me up. 
the captioning ceremony afterwards in the church, the Queen uh, and the Duke of Edinburgh walk back to the church and there's a sitting of Tinwald where the acts that have been promulgated are signed. She, uh, well, it's normally done with a quill pen. Did she use a quill? I was told that the Queen declined to use such newfangled writing implements and that she'd only use a Parker 61. So I actually went and bought a Parker 61 personally, thinking, well, I'll, I'll produce a pen for her to use and then I can keep it. Um, probably a very improper motive for a public servant to admit at this stage. Uh, but it was there for her to use. I don't know actually whether she used it because I was told that she did take something out of her handbag as well. But the, that pen is no longer in my possession. I presented it to Tinwald um, many years ago and said, I think this was the pen that at least was available for Her Majesty's use on Tinwald Day. But there was, there was a bit of a glitch. Your Excellency, members of the Council, Mr Speaker and members of the House of Keys, we shall now caption the acts just promulgated on Tinwald Hill. Because the... the the, the wording that had been stamped on each act that had been promulgated rather suggested that the Lieutenant Governor would sign it. And there's a little sotto voce exchange between the Queen and Sir John Paul, who was sitting next to us, and he'd say, well, just get on with it, just you sign it. <laughs> the court will now stand adjourned to Tuesday the 10th of July 1979 at 10.30am in Douglas. The Council will now retire and members of the House of Keys will remain to transact such business as may be brought before them. Later that day, of course, there was the official opening of the new Peel School, the secondary school, Queen Elizabeth II's school, named after Her Majesty, and the, the chairman of the Millennium Committee, who dressed as wonderfully as the Queen herself, Betty Hanson, was there, and I have to say, not being unkind, but quite a few of the people we hear speaking on Tinwell Day affected very, very far-back accents that I'm sure they didn't normally have. Here we, here we hear Betty Hanson um, uh, welcoming Her Majesty. In welcoming Your Majesty to this school, I express the greatest possible joy and honour that the Board of Education and the people of the island feel about your presence here this afternoon. Your Majesty, may I humbly ask you to unveil the plaque which commemorates this historical event. Betty Hanson with her best voice. Well, after Tinwald Week, there was Celtic Week, which I was organising, and I think I spent around £45,000 that week alone. We had the Irish-Scottish Shinty hurling final, but we had to fly all the players in, in private planes, which wasn't cheap. I remember the final was being played on the Portishee rugby pitch, which obviously hadn't been used for some months. And when I went to look at it the day before, I saw, to my horror, that the grass was nearly up to my waist. I rang my dad in a panic, and fortunately, he was great friends with Peter Dunn, the head of the corporation's parks department, and soon a great convoy of grass cutters was on its way from Balafton, and they mowed the whole field for me. We had Celtic pipe bands, Breton and Welsh dancers, Scottish choirs, the singer Mary O'Hara at the Gaiety, and the internationally famous folk group, the Chieftains.
Now, they were staying at the Villiers Hotel, and Paddy Maloney, who ran the group, insisted on being paid in cash, something the government doesn't normally do. I had to get special dispensation from someone in the Treasury and go with a chit to the Isle of Man Bank, where I was given a bag with £2,200 in it, and I then walked down Victoria Street into the Villiers and up to Paddy's room and handed it over. Slightly unconventional. So, Robert, there was a long list of distinguished guests on the island that year. The Queen's visit was the highlight, of course, but there were other royals as well. We did actually have Prince Charles very briefly. I think he flew in on the same plane as somebody, but he didn't stop. Um, The Princess Royal, who wasn't the Princess Royal then, she was just plain Princess Anne, came to events associated with Save the Children Fund and Riding for the Disabled, and there was a ball held in the Villa Marina, organised by Eunice Salmon, Fenella, who embraced the whole idea of Millennium with great enthusiasm, particularly as it involved you know, notable people coming who, whom she could interview for her page. But then there was um, Princess Marina. Yes, I, I can't remember what she came for. But the the high spot for me, of course, was the King of Norway, who came for all of five days, and it involved rewriting the programme every day because the the weather was bad, his yacht broke down. We had to employ an enormous amount of ingenuity, but he seemed to enjoy it immensely. It always had a smile on his face and was always cheerful. The president of Malta is a gentleman who Sir Charles Carouche had met on some occasion, and he he readily latched on to the idea of coming to the Isle of Man. The president of Iceland, I remember there were enormous travel difficulties, and we ended up flying him in in a private plane, thanks to an old friend of ours, Stuart Jameson. Um, And uh, David Wilson from the British Museum came over to look after the president, because the president was a distinguished scholar himself, and David wanted to show him some of the many Viking sites on the Isle of Man. Just thinking of the Arboretum there, Robert, which is another great legacy from Millennium Year, I've been looking at some of the Hansards here, and one very odd thing came out. Um, there was a, a debate in Tinwald, and Elspeth Quayle, who I presume was chairman of the Forestry Board, stood up and said, amongst other things her department had been asked to do, was to plant 10,000 palms on the island, and she really didn't think this was a good idea, and she's quite right. Well, I think she was right as well. Um, the, the, one of the things the Millennium Committee did was that to actually sort of advertise for ideas as to how we should celebrate this great occasion. And we got all sorts of crackpot ideas coming in. And somebody obviously thought that palm trees were what the Isle of Man was associated with and suggested that there should be 10,000 of the flaming things. I'm so relieved they didn't do that. Well, I think in hindsight, that was a wise decision. There were so many events during the year. Indeed, anyone who did a regular event made it into a special millennium event. And then there was a Manx wedding at Mackled, a reenactment of the mutiny on the bounty in Onken, a tattoo in Douglas, a special Scottish week. The TV programme It's a Knockout visited the island. There was an air race at Jerby, an international folk festival, and then there was the Millennium Lottery. This was hugely successful the idea being to raise money for the elderly and the disabled of the island. Some three million tickets were sold, bringing in over £350,000 for that good cause. 
The draw for the winning ticket, worth £50,000, was in the Villa Marina, and the chairman of executive council, Percy Radcliffe, made the draw. Unfortunately, it wasn't a Manx person who won it, but where was the winner from? Percy had a bit of difficulty deciphering the name. The name on the ticket is David Thompson. The address is 9 Brian, B-R-I-E-N, Crescent. Now, the next part of it, I'm certain, in my estimation, it doesn't belong to the Isle of Man. It's, uh, B, it's spelt B-A-L-U-M-A-M-A-L-L-A-R-O. Now, where does that come from? That's Ireland. Ireland. Oh. Nine by the way, the gentleman who had won lived in a place called Ballina Mallard in Enniskillen. Which reminds me of one story I heard. There was something like 700 military personnel on the island during Tinwald's Week, and a good few military police as well. Most of them were billeted in the Jerby camp, but some were staying in hotels in Douglas, and apparently one policeman, when he was checking in to his hotel on Loch Prom, Notice that the person in front of him was a member of the IRA, who was apparently over having a week's holiday. Well, as the year came to a close, I think everyone felt that it had been certainly worthwhile. And a few months later in Tinwald, there was the final report about the cost of it all. And I'm looking again at Hansard here. And the cost to the government was approximately 833000 by uh, Treasury figures. Though it says here, this could become less because the sale of camp beds and sleeping bags still continues to have an income. But they then told us that the increase in tourists was up by 71,000 with another 34,000 day trippers and that the direct benefit to the government was something like 2.6 million. So I think by any standards, um, it was a success. I think when we came to initially work out how much Millennium was going to cost, there was there was just no there were no parameters on which to work, um, and so there'd been quite a lot of guesswork involved in how much things might cost, and the event did rather grow like topsy, and, and with every new idea there was obviously money to be found, but we'd always I think had it in the backs of the committee's mind that, that this would s- seek to generate income for the Isle of Man. And under the old common purse agreement, of course, there was every visitor was worth a certain amount of money. Um, in net terms, I think it was financially beneficial to the Isle of Man, um, even though there were one or two quite expensive events on the way. Well, talking of that, I can't help noticing you came back in 1980 for a further, in, in February, 50,000 for the Tinwald ceremony, and then... Uh, I think in March or April, a further £130,000 for the Tinwell ceremony. Presumably bills were still coming in, were they? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> I can't honestly remember, Charles. Um, I'm sure somebody told me that we had to have a supplementary vote, and we duly did, but the members of Tinwell were very... Uh, they recognised the value of this to the Isle of Man. Forty years later, Robert... There are legacies. There is the Millennium Way, the Millennium Carpet, still some of the Millennium chairs around. What do you think we we still remember about it all? 
I think the most important legacy of the millennium was the fact that it put Tynwald on the map with certainly the Scandinavian countries again and in a wider context of the parliamentary tradition of the British Isles. Um, up till then we'd been living rather under the shadow of Westminster and it was a good opportunity to reinforce Tynwald's um, much older roots than Westminster in the, the form of the Viking um, meetings of the, of the people with the, the Lord on a certain day every year, um, which, which is the same roots that you get in all the Scandinavian countries. And it did promote the Isle of Man on a world scene, a theme which Tynwald continued to do during the subsequent years with its involvement with the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association and things like that. Don't forget, the Isle of Man was this little sort of place in the Irish Sea that most people hadn't even heard of. And I think it did, it did, it did promote the Isle of Man very heavily in the wider world. Um, and that's the lasting legacy of it. Yes, there are all the little sort of Jim Cracks and things that one's got around, you know, a millennium chair, because the chairs that were made for the Tynwald ceremony by Remploy, the, the, the organisation that employed disabled servicemen and people like that, um, were sold to the participants that they wanted to buy them, and I still have one in my in my office at home. And the Millennium Carpet, which is in the Tynwald Chamber now, which was duly sort of changed to suit the Tynwald Chamber, and they're, they're all the presents that came to Tynwald, and the park, the, the stone at Tynwald, all those visible signs. Uh, but it's it's the it's the intangible legacy that I think was important for the for the year. And so, forty years on there is still a legacy from the millennium and many fond memories. My outstanding memory was the visit of the chieftains and their concert in the old Palace Lido. But perhaps not for the reason you might expect. I had spent weeks negotiating with the Palace Company and their manager about the use of the Lido, but when it came to the night and the concert had started in front of a full house, he came over to me and said... I don't know how long this is going on for, but I've got the cabaret starting in half an hour. What? It was the first I'd ever heard of it. I managed to delay the cabaret, but the chieftain's concert certainly finished early and the public were very disgruntled. As they were leaving and complaining to him, the manager had the nerve to point to me and tell them that it was my fault. Of course, they rounded on me, and it was only the fact that I had my chequebook on me and was able to refund tickets there and then that I got out in one piece. Even so, I went on to a fantastic party with the chieftains that night, and they had played some Manx music. Amazing memories of an extraordinary year, and I can only say it was a privilege to be involved with celebrating a thousand years of Manx parliamentary history and sharing Tinwald and our culture with the rest of the world. From Robert and from me, Charles Gard, goodbye. <laughs>